Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. All right, welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. I am here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Good to be with you as always. Great to be with you, Todd. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story of a client of mine. So this young man who probably was in his 30s, he was diagnosed with ADHD and brilliant, quite creative. And he had a nagging project that was in his life that he was in charge of. So he was newly married. I mean, maybe, I guess, two or three years into marriage and they had a baby and the baby was probably eight months old when he brought it to my attention that he needed some help. He said, my wife was in charge of everything except one thing. She said he was very savvy with uh, digital technology. So he said, she said, why don't you put together a montage for his first birthday and I want you to gather the photographs and all the videos that we've been taking. They're on different cell phones, different clouds, different laptops, Uh, just integrate them, put them together. And that's all. The rest I will manage. And so week before the child's birthday, which four months into our work, he said, Sucheta, I think I'm going to get divorced. I said, "What? what? What happened? So apparently his wife asked for a divorce one week before the big birthday celebration. And the straw that broke the camel's back was this dang montage. (laughs) I think uh, the wife got a full sense of his difficulty in organizing, orchestrating, choreographing this tedious, not most difficult, but tedious process of putting together. And the story, I know I don't mean to say this in a funny way, but what was so surprising to him that he did not see any of the divorce coming. He did not see the disgruntledness the wife was feeling about his lack of competence, cooperation, and uh, their relationship was going south. And the montage, the photographs just turned out to be the straw that broke the camel's back. The reason I'm sharing this story is our guest today is a fabulous, insightful expert who actually understands this and is going to shed some light as to how relationships work and a little bit of a disconnect between this impending doom and their personal performance and executive dysfunction and uh, how ADHD has a role to play. So with great joy, it gives me pleasure to invite Dr. Ari Tuckman, who is also a practicing psychologist, but also a certified sex therapist who has given more than 350 presentations and routinely earns excellent reviews for his ability to make a complicated information understandable and useful. And his reputation preceded you know, um, I was invited to speak in uh, Texas and their last year's presenter was Ari. And every audience member who had heard him, Ashtok came and said, yeah, it was great. But Ari Tuckman was also great. <laughs> so he's the author <laughs> of four books, which is ADHD After Dark, Better Sex Life, Better Relationship. I love that title. Can't wait to talk about that as well. Understand Your Brain, Get More Done, More Attention, Less Deficit, which is my favorite book because I've read two of your books, and sorry, I, had, I need to read all four, and Integrative Treatment for Adult ADHD. His More Attention, Less Deficit podcast has more than 100 episodes, and I'm proud to tell you that I heard 43, 
So that's a big accomplishment. <laughs> and more than 2 million downloads. He is a psychologist and a sex therapist in private practice in Westchester, Pennsylvania, a former board member of CHAD National and a co-chair of CHAD Conference Committee. So welcome. Well, thank you. I am really happy to be here and I'm looking forward to talking about what I think is some really interesting stuff. Fabulous. So before we get into the meat of it, I asked this question of all my guests. You know, this podcast is about executive function. We talk a lot about intentional focus, adaptive flexibility, assessing goals, learning to be future oriented. And so how were your skills in that area when you were growing up? And how were you as a learner and a student? When did you begin to think about your thinking? And how did you strategize your learning as you were becoming a learner expert, I guess? Sure. I've always been, well, I guess one way of putting it is I've always been sort of driven. And, you know, I have a lot of things that I'm interested in. And I really enjoy kind of getting into projects that I don't necessarily have to. So like showing up on this podcast is a good example, you know, but I wouldn't want to miss it. You know, like to me, this is really interesting stuff. And I think one of the ways that I've been able to do as much as I've been able to do is that I am very sort of like deadline oriented and sort of future oriented. And I think a lot about how different pieces sort of fit into what's going to happen in the future. So for example, if I have multiple deadlines, which I think is probably always the case that I have multiple deadlines, different things going, that thinking about how to sequence them, what needs to happen before what, if I have something to do that I need a chunk of time to really focus in, what chunk is that going to be? If there's a little dinky like returning emails, where do I sprinkle those in? And, you know, I think I've always sort of been like, you know, feeling like, that sort of pressure of time passing and wanting to get done everything that I want to get done. And yet, as much as this can make me sound like I'm sort of a stress case, in a lot of ways, like I really am not. So like when it comes time to show up for a test or something, I'm usually pretty relaxed because I know I've done what I needed to do. And then you just show up and take it. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I think I feel a lot of my anxiety in the future. And then when I deal with it, then I'm calm in the present, if that makes sense. Wow. So you have great executive function is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, pretty much. And you have great sense of balance and perspective, so to speak. But you are the kind of person who puts in a lot of upfront effort, which is what we want our kids and adults that we work with to do. And they somehow have a lot of struggle with that. One more question I have is, how is, has your clinical work and your expertise and watching day in and day out people's struggles inform your or have influenced the way you live your life? So, of course, it sounds like you already bring a lot of strengths to it. But has this work influenced the way you approach life? Absolutely. So, you know, I see a lot of folks with ADHD. And as you know, ADHD is really all about executive functions. And even more so, it's about executive functions in relation to time, and more precisely in relation kind of balancing the present versus the future. And I think we're going to talk a bunch more about that. But seeing the struggles that my clients have with this on a day-by-day -day basis, it really just sort of highlights for me the importance of some of the sort of good habits that I do have. And I'm by no means saying I'm perfect, but it, it sort of, it makes me more diligent because I see every day in the office kind of what are the prices one pays for not being sufficiently diligent, for not really applying your executive functions in an intentional kind of a way. So I don't know, to just sort of 
be more on top of what needs to be on top of. And I think that, you know, then helps me kind of in the work that I do with my clients to help them be more intentional about how they use their executive function. And also, I think based on listening to your voice uh, on the podcast and your approach to advice giving is, I think you have a great mastery of emotional, you know, your your own emotionality. So that coming from equanimity when you are dealing with people who are quite on a roller coaster. I bet mm-hmm. that has a lot to do with it as well, right? Absolutely. You know, I had a professor who in graduate school, he, he wasn't the best professor in other ways, but he did have this one great line where he said, if there are two people in a room and one of them is anxious, the other one needs to not be. And, you know, obviously in this that. case, he was talking about if the client is anxious as a therapist, if you start getting anxious, then you're both lost. But it applies to relationships, so to adults, it applies to parenting kids, it applies to coworkers, whatever, that, you know, at least one person needs to be able to sort of manage their emotions well so that both people aren't sort of swept away in whatever's going on in the moment. Oh, I love that. I, I, I'm going to remember to mention that to my clients. <laughs> so let's get started with this idea that in your work, you talk a lot about having better connection to the future self, uh, a sense of kind of continuity with self that changes over time, but also is directed towards something bigger than or finalistic or not even finalistic, but something that adds into your whole uh, value-driven self. So can we talk a little bit about that, the human struggle that goes into balancing the desire to be in the moment while also considering the future? Why do so many people love being here and, you know, it becomes sticky for them to not switch to constantly toggle between the future you and the current you? Yeah, I mean, this is really like the fundamental struggle. And on the one hand, this is indeed what kind of separates us in many ways from the animals. So like my dog, I don't think does a lot of future planning. It doesn't seem like it. But, you know, as people, hopefully we do. So that could be stuff like putting money away for retirement that you won't spend for 20 or 40 years. Could also be stuff like smoking cigarettes sure seems cool when you're 15, but you know, dying of lung cancer is kind of bad. So maybe I won't start smoking. But it's also like little things like, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. I should really go to bed, except I don't really feel like it. And this is sort of fun doing what I'm doing. Or those chocolate cookies sure smell delicious. I would really enjoy eating one right now. But I'm going to think about how we'll feel afterwards or how we'll feel at the end of the week if I'm not meeting my, you know, diet goals or something. So, you know, we're always balancing pleasure in the moment with what our long-term goals, what our long-term needs are. And unfortunately, not in all ways, but, you know, there's a lot of things in the world that feel really good in the moment, but don't serve us well in the future. Or it's the avoidance of pain in the moment that then doesn't serve us well in the future. So for example, going and working out when you don't feel like it is good for you in the future. You know, it's good to have done it, but it doesn't feel good to do it. Or sitting down and like, I don't know, like I was just at a conference. So like taking all my receipts and totaling them up and stapling them together is going to be really great, you know, next March when it's time to do taxes. But at this moment, I probably don't feel like doing it. So You don't want to live so much for the future that you're not living a life now, although that's for that's very much the minority position. 
But, you know, the bigger challenge for most of us is how to not live too much in the moment so that then we pay a price later or have less of a positive future at some later point. And I feel that this is compounded by lack of clarity of the future or not having motivation to find purpose, which is really connected to the uh, future. And uh, that can also cause a lot of disruption, you know. So the current moment feels fabulous because I ain't got anything going on with my Mm -hmm. life. So I've had uh, Hal Hirschfield talk about this, that uh, the whole role of, you know, that uh, future savings idea. But can we talk a little bit more in detail about this connection between this and the executive function? Because the executive function really is what allows the balancing act that you're talking about. So how do you see it play out when it comes to helping people to develop these abilities? Right. So, you know, I think, first of all, you're absolutely right about the fact that, you know, there's something about having a purpose, having some bigger goal, which is not exact. I mean, that's not an executive function thing. But if you don't have a sense of where you want to end up, if the future is rather vague or amorphous. So like, for example, if I'm trying to eat healthier, but I don't really have a a goal that I'm shooting for other than some vague notion of eating healthier, or I don't have a reason why, like my doctor said, like, hey, you got to get, you know, this number down a bit. It's a lot harder to feel the motivation in that case. And then you can't apply the executive function. So that's kind of like the hot emotional side and the cold, more cognitive side of it. So having some sort of goal, I think, is really important. But then it becomes a matter of applying the executive function by stepping out of the temptations of the present. We're stepping back from the sort of stimuli of the present moment so that we can pause to think about what the future might be. And it's in that moment that we sort of balance the present versus the future. And this is not to say that the goal is to live some austere lifestyle, but really live it up when you're 70. Like that's not the goal, but, but rather it's to, if we use the chocolate chip cookie example, you know, to have a chocolate chip cookie when it's the right time to do it, whatever that means to say like, you know what, mostly I've been eating pretty good. Yes. I could enjoy this cookie right now. Or to say, you know what, I haven't actually been eating that well. I'm not on track to what I would like to do with my health or whatever. So I am making a choice to pass on this cookie. And that's where the executive functions come in is to sort of, you know, they come in that pause between stimulus and response to then think through the possibilities, consider the future, and then make a choice at that moment. And you you bring up a very important point that I've seen become a big problem, which is this austere life, which is if I don't indulge in now, then are you telling me to abstain from all that is fun? <laughs> and you know right. that, and they look at that current moment as a punishment I'm giving myself. And so you're saying that really it's not punishment. Yeah, I mean, I can't even convince uh, many of my clients that, you know, I have uh, kind of recommended the, uh, the, you know, make your bed, uh, that little, remember that speech that became viral, that, you know, simple habits, how they can add. But I think a lot of times this, somehow a lot of my ADHD folks feel that they are in shackles of uh, routines and they hate it because they feel they define or they'll somehow hijack me from my ability to be a vagabond. <laughs> what do you think right. tell such right. patients? <laughs> yeah, so I think it, so it's, an, it's an important point that you're bringing up. So punishment is often, it's sort of externally driven. You know, like if you eat the cookie, I will then, I don't know, whatever, you have to go to your room and not watch TV or something, right? That 
but and of course nobody likes to be externally controlled nobody likes to be sort of feel punished like that but i think in that circumstance the problem is it's not the client's goal it might be your goal for them or they might think that it, this is your goal for them but you know like my job as a, as a psychologist is not to decide for my clients what they should do my goal is to help them make choices that they can feel okay about so you know, like the example I'll, I'll sort of use here is, you know, I've had more than one client who like hasn't done their taxes in five years. Now, I would be incredibly stressed out about not having any tax returns for five years, but like they're sort of stressed out, but not super stressed out. So my job is to help them figure out, like, is this worth it to you? Like, is it important to you to get it done? If it is, and I'm not saying it needs to be, but if it is, then what are you willing to do to make it happen? So so it becomes their goal to do, or it's their goal to use a schedule, some, you know, a scheduling system like, you know, Google Calendar or whatever, that it's important to them because they recognize that their life is better. So if they don't see how some sacrifice in the present benefits them in the future, it's a tough sell, you know, like that's not going to be a habit that's going to last long. But even here, like it becomes all, it all kind of becomes circular. Like you need the executive functions to be able to step out of the present moment to really kind of think about this bigger picture goal and what is important to you and what trade-offs are you willing to make? And are there other compromises you can make instead? And how do you, you know, sort of think it all through? But I think that's important. And I think that just saying you need to get a to-do list, that you need to put things in your calendar or whatever, like it doesn't, it often doesn't stick because it winds up not really being connected to anything other than what seems like kind of generic good advice or that somebody else is kind of forcing their way onto you, which is, again, a tough sell. You know, you're so right. I have seen it wasn't until I would say five, six years ago that I became aware that procrastination is actually or there's a, a huge component of psychological com- or psychological ailment <laughs> that needs to be addressed and that sense of existential crisis you know like uh, who am i if i don't get these things done who am i really and because a lot of times as a coping mechanism the adhd folks that i work with allow themselves to be okay with the outcome that's negative or not favorable to that future self because the future Goals are movable because they didn't make it happen in the current moment through abstinence, through cajoling self, whatever it was. So, you know, yes, mm-hmm. I want to get get good grades and then I don't get good grades. Oh, well, I didn't get good grades. I mean, all along feeling terrible. So that feeling terrible doesn't go away, but somehow really not feeling that I have any agency. So it sounds like your work. And that's why it's so important to work with psychologists like you that because that sense of agency needs to be awoken and shaped by some therapy. You know, it's not a cognitive approach. This is a deeply psychological approach. Right. You know, in, in particular, you know, if it's someone who has ADHD or some other thing that's sort of long standing, it's not just like, you know, I've been sick for the last few days and I'm not really getting things done. You know, the psychology then, I kind of say that, you know, neurology drives psychology. So that someone who struggled all of their life with getting things done and being consistent about it, it would be unreasonable then for them to not have some self-doubt. You know, oh man, I got that big work project coming up. Sure hope I, you know, can get it done. 
I sure hope it's not going to be a mad dash scramble at the end, but you know what? It always is. So I guess that's just, that's just how it's going to be. You know, like there's this kind of learned pessimism that they've developed, or as Russ Ramsey from Penn has coined it, self-mistrust, you know, like that is this idea of like, I can't trust myself when I say I'm going to start this time. I'm starting that work project early when the last 50 times it hasn't been started early or maybe most of the last 50 times. So like, you know, there's that part of it as well. So they, they sort of give up too early on the idea of getting started earlier. Like they start and then they hit a little bit of bump or they can't get going immediately and then they give up too soon. So they don't have that kind of persistence to kind of like slog through those uncomfortable moments and apply themselves, you know, in a more effortful kind of a way. And that's why I think sometimes I find that if people take only coaching approach or send their children to tutoring, which is somebody literally being your frontal lobes and sitting with you and telling you, okay, put that away. Now take out this. Yeah. Did you write it in this? No. Okay. Go ahead. You know, so that instructional supervision or like a babysitting with the frontal lobes is something people prefer. But I think that coaching, if doesn't kind of empower the learner that self-knowledge that, as you're talking about, that addresses the cognitive aspects of self-regulation and the psychological aspect, the help won't be everlasting. What is your take on that? What are the, some of these approaches that begin to take shape that are effective, but they address hot and cold executive functions? Well, so certainly one big thing is, at least if somebody has ADHD, is medication that, you know, it improves the person's ability to do what they need to do. Now, granted, that benefit starts to wear off at the end of the day as the medication wears off, and then they need to take another pill tomorrow. So it's not like taking an antibiotic that it knocks out the, you know, infection and then you're good to go. But, you know, for what it's worth, my vision is no better after I take out my contact lenses than it was before I put them in. So such is the way of life. And, you know, you still got to take a shower every day and all that other stuff. But it certainly improves the person's ability to, I, I sometimes say that ADHD medication closes the gap between intentions and actions. So there's less of a hump to get over, to get going on things, to persist on them, sort of pause and think about the future. But having said that, you can take, you know, a pound of medication. And if you decide that mostly what you want to do is watch Netflix. I don't know. You might remember the details of the shows you're watching a little bit better, but you're still not getting anything done. So medication is helpful, but it's not the <laughs> yes. whole story. You know, creating a good work environment for yourself with fewer distractions, let's say. Another good idea, definitely recommend it, but in and of itself is not sufficient. So, you know, so it's really kind of, it's all of the above. It's having a bit of the right medication if that's relevant. It's creating good work environments, having good tools and systems like reminders, like having a good schedule system, having some sort of good to-do list, having some sort of, you know, making easy filing systems and not like super complicated. And then also the psychology, recognizing this is important. This is worthwhile. Here's my future goal. Here's my future benefit. This is why I'm putting in the work, even when sometimes I don't feel like it. Fabulous. So now can we talk a little bit about relationships? Can yeah. you help our listeners understand, and you are an expert in this, so what is the relationship between executive dysfunction and having social-emotional 
understanding. And I see nothing but negative ramifications of that. And as a sex therapist, what are the additional layers that you may be handling in your practice that are a little bit unseen to the observer who is just an outsider? Yeah. So at the end of the day, we're social creatures. And for a lot of people, it's not simply like work achievement that drives a sense of happiness and fulfillment, but it's our relationships. It's the connections that we have with others. And folks who have executive function challenges will struggle, you know, certainly in terms of school and work in ways that probably everybody's familiar with, but it also shows up in your relationships in that, you know, when we have relationships with other people, we have certain expectations of them. Now, those might be too much or too little, the expectations we have for people, but we always have expectations. Like I expected my wife certain things just as she expects of me certain things. The problem then for folks with executive function issues is that they don't fulfill the expectations that their partner has for them. And that then causes strain in the relationship. And often, not always, but often what happens is the other partner winds up functioning more and the person with executive function challenges begins taking on less. And there's this kind of shifting that takes place. To some degree, that can be okay. But it then eventually gets to a point, especially as life gets more complicated. So kids show up and then you're living in a house and not some crappy apartment and your jobs become more demanding and more complicated and there's more to take care of that the other partner winds up kind of hitting the breaking point and they feel frustrated and they feel resentful and they don't feel like their partner is being there for them in the ways that they want them to be, which then you know leads to resentment criticism, nagging, anger, the person with the executive function challenges then, you know, who wants to be on the receiving end of all that. So understandably, they sort of retreat or feel like it doesn't matter what I do, it's never going to be enough. And, you know, on the one hand, absolutely the person with the executive function challenges needs probably to step up a bit more and to be more reliable, to be more consistent, to kind of carry more of their weight, to check in more with their partner and see how they're doing. But also equally true, but often missed is the, let's just say the non-ADHD partner needs to be able to know when to step back, when to let things go. What are the battles to pick and what are the battles to pass on? And it's not the ADHD partner's job to never give the non-ADHD partner anything to be anxious about. So like, they need to manage their anxiety. They need to understand it's not always going to be my way. Or sometimes it's okay to do things differently. And I'm just going to let that one go. This is true of any relationship. Like you get some stuff your way and some stuff you just got to accept. But it's heightened even more so when somebody has ADHD or executive function challenges. And they just need to work that much harder to feel like they're on the same team and to not feel like they fall into kind of a a parent-child dynamic, which is not fun in relationships. And when it comes to sex, is a total killer. That kills intimacy or, you know, physical sexual desires, often on both parts. So the goal of my new book that's coming out, ADHD After Dark, is to help these couples where one person is ADHD and one person doesn't, to get along better together. That sexual connection is really important in terms of a couple's happiness and longevity and giving them the good feelings about each other to bounce over the daily mundane struggles of life. 
but to do that requires doing, frankly, some hard emotional relationship work in finding the ways where the one person can step up and the other person can step down so that they can do better overall, which is then better for their kids if they have any. Because when mom and dad do well, or mom and mom and dad and dad, like when the parents do well, the kids do better also. You know, as you're speaking about this, I'm reminded of mumblecore. Do you know it's a new genre of TV making or show making or whatever? I had never heard of it before. But anyway, there's a great show called Easy. It's on Netflix and not recommending people to waste their time. But it's a great way the show is written and it's fabulous acting. But the dialogues are written as if you are literally going through life and, and it's not been scripted. It doesn't appear to be scripted. But the reason I'm bringing this up is they have, you know, who's doing a great job of describing everything you just talked about is all these writers and producers of these sitcoms and shows. They're not providing solutions, but now they are going deeper and deeper and depicting the nuances or uh, you as an observer gets a window into something and I can say, oh my God, that's my ADHD client there. Yes. That's the ADHD or impulsive executive dysfunction, uh, bored, not taking enough responsibility, not engaging, not checking in or becoming a mother, you know, becoming a father. <laughs> I'm seeing all that depicted. Unfortunately, I'm not seeing a very well modeled <laughs> TV. Of course, that will not make a good drama. But what's interesting about what you're saying is a lot of my clients and particularly adults who are parents who bring their children but they haven't really developed the insight that they themselves have these struggles or they have never received a diagnosis of treatment of it, that they really want their children to be better, but they don't take the time or don't take serious understanding that they need to change. How do you see that play out in your practice? Yeah, I think that it's much easier to see this in others. And Although as a society, we're doing a better job of recognizing and diagnosing and treating ADHD in adults and just learning disabilities in general in adults, we're still much better at identifying it in kids. And so I think some of it is this idea of like, well, you managed to survive into adulthood. I guess you must be doing enough things, right? Good luck. So people don't necessarily think of it for themselves, even though it becomes very apparent pretty quickly in a conversation that they're having the same struggles that their kid is having just in a more grown-up context. So I do think it's important if you suspect yourself or someone, another adult that you know, whether it's personal relationship or if you're a provider or an educator or something, you know, the, the people that you're working with, if there's some suspicion of this, probably worth getting checked out because once you know what's going on, you're in a much better position to do something about it. Yeah. And, and even though it may be a little bit kind of create discomfort, but you're right, I think addressing it is going to empower you. Do you see a change in your practice over time or in general trends that people are seeking more help? I see a bigger trend, I mean, a great trend towards seeking medication, but people are not comfortable seeking therapy or, you know, really working with somebody with great effort because it just takes time unless it becomes right. significantly impairing or devastatingly interfering, then people take steps. But otherwise, people just want to have quick fix. Right. So as we come to a close, what are your thoughts about 
children's ability to form better relationships. I think it's one thing that adults struggling with ADHD have a little bit cognitive maturity to, or also their the ramifications are quite great and visible and tangible, but children are just developing these abilities. What do you see the, or their understanding of self and their own assessment of the kinds of relationships they're having with others? Where do you see the greatest struggle and what do you suppose is the best approach? So, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that, you know, you do see this. And I think that to some degree, it depends on how much hyperactivity and impulsivity are a part of the picture versus if someone tends to just be more inattentive, that I think the folks are more hyperactive and impulsive as kids, like it has a much bigger social impact because these are the kids who are kind of getting in trouble at school, not, you know, stuff like smoking in the bathroom or something, not like big stuff, but just that like, they're the one that the teacher is always saying something to. They're the ones who are talking when you're not supposed to be talking. They're the ones who are getting the kids around them into trouble because they're talking together or whatever is perceived by the teacher to be talking together. So those are the kids that are often sort of ostracized a bit more and will struggle to get play dates, or they're the ones who are not being texted when a bunch of other people are getting together. Whereas those who are more inattentive, it still shows up. And, you know, in particularly, I think with girls more so than with boys, they're the kids who wind up being excluded a bit more. They don't remember the details of like, no, I was telling you last time, you know, what happened with Jenny. I can't believe you don't remember it. And I think that they're prone to settling for friendships where they're just not treated as well. You know what I mean? That there's a sense of like, well, I'm just lucky to have Absolutely. this. Or maybe they don't notice how they're not being treated as well. And perhaps later they realize, or as adults or something. So, you know, so my the advice that I give in terms of this is they're younger kids, obviously, then it really comes down to the parents to sort of think about who their kids are, are hanging out with. Some kids who tend to be a bit more impulsive, you know, the worst thing is two impulsive kids together. So finding other kids who are pretty mellow and a stabilizing force maybe can be a good thing. But also to do a little bit of work about, you know, kind of talking to your kids about how their friendships are going and who they're hanging out with. And if something happens, obviously, we always want to jump to the defense of our kids. But sometimes maybe we need to push them a little bit. Or to sort of find the friends who are going to be a good fit and people who are kind of particular and difficult, let's say, probably not a good fit for a kid with ADHD because that's the setup for there too often to be a problem. And the problem clearly is going to be the kid with ADHD because it's not the particular kid who's the problem here, right? That's the sort of dynamic that gets set up. Exactly. Um, so people who get all offended and worked up when you're running late you may not be a good match for them as a friend and they may not be a good match for you as a friend. You know, so you need to work harder and be considerate and text people when you're running late, but people who are going to put you in the doghouse for being late, like you need to find somebody else. Yeah. I think this is so valuable that, you know, this is actually the, <laughs> the making and the breaking of friendships, isn't it? That if you're judged harshly for the very quality that makes you who you are, then you right. become a very, you're going to be, have resentment towards everybody who comes into your life, but you also 
don't recognize that you have goodness in you that you can share with people, but that goodness never comes out because they're not hanging out with you long enough to see your goodness. Yeah. I like to educate children about having a language that enables them to describe their symptoms and struggles without imposing any burden on the listener or the friend that you don't need to take care of me, but this is so I'm so sorry, but I tend to run late. Is there any way you can text me before I leave the house or something? And kind of opening a dialogue where the friend says, I don't like to do that. Then you can say, okay, okay, no problem. And so then kind of going to parent and saying, I have this important friendship. And the second thing I work a lot with this social understanding piece is kind of theory of mind that reading the minds of others, kind of checking mm -hmm. in with people and seeing how are you feeling? What are you thinking? How are you doing with us? A lot of times that, as you mentioned, these inattentive and hyperactive kids are not oriented towards the minds of others and miss out on a lot of information about the mental states of others too, right? Yeah. So like they may not understand why, the, or they may not even know that the friend is going to be upset because they don't realize how late they're running, for example, or they don't remember they've been late the last three times, but the friend remembers. So it, it feels like this anger or, or whatever from other people is sort of coming out of nowhere. And from their perspective, it is, you know, given their awareness of things. So, you know, I mean, obviously you can't do anything about what you're not even aware of in the first place. Exactly. But, so one of the things and kind of very similar to what you're doing is I'll sort of coach people to, you know, it's sort of, I call it expectation management. So if the issue is this person tends to run late is to be right up front, particularly with like newer friends to say like, look, here's the deal. I really struggle with running late. I know I need to do better at it, but like it's always been hard for me. And honestly, like it always will. So here's the deal. Before you leave the house, text me to make sure that I'm on my way. So it's not their Just job great. to make sure you're, you're on time, but it is their job to ensure that they are not going to be unhappy about waiting there. Like their happiness is their job. So, you know, great. if they will be mortally offended and bored to death and embarrassed sitting at the restaurant by themselves, or whatever, then it's incumbent on them to check in. Now, there may be some friends who are going to say, like, look, I'm not doing it. Like, that's not my job. I can't, I'm not interested, something, something. And then I think the response from the person with ADHD is to say, okay, you know what? It may just be that we are not, we're just not meant to be friends. Or maybe we see each other at parties and gatherings, like, awesome, let's enjoy it. But, you know, maybe we just can't set things up to get together. But I think that the thing about that is it's important that the person with ADHD not take it all onto themselves. I am not capable of being friends with people. No, you are very capable of being friends with people. You're not good yes. at getting there on time. If somebody has that as a deal breaker, which is their right, it may just be that you and them are not a good fit with each other and you need to find other friends and they need to find other friends. So it's this balancing act of, Yes, work hard at being more on time, work hard at texting people when you're late, whatever, whatever. So change the parts that you can, while also accepting that this is kind of who I am. It's not all of who I am. It doesn't take away from the rest of who I am. But like this one skill, if this is super important to you and a friend, I'm just not that person. And that's okay. I love it. I love it that it doesn't take away from who you are. I think that's the balance. That's the emotional adjustment that you make with your, or making peace with yourself and having ADHD gracefully, I call it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Own it gracefully. <laughs> 
Well, Ari, this has been a terrific uh, conversation and thank you for your generosity and, and just being open with us and, um, and diving deep, particularly the um, r- intimacy aspects of things. I think this is going to be extremely valuable. And and also, I don't think this applies only to ADHD. You know, I think in this crazy oh. frenzy that we are in, trying to live the digital life where we are so distracted, people are really becoming more forgetful and hyperactive, impulsive, and inattentive at the same time without any diagnosis. <laughs> so right. those are the kids yeah. uh, in us that we need to manage ourselves and manage expectations in others. So thank you for being here today and for wonderful insight. You are very gracious. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That's all the time we have for today. If you know of someone who might benefit from listening to today's episode, we would be grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dr. Ari Tuckman, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thank you for listening today, and we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal. Prefrontal.